1: A feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Mike Glover is the CEO of Fieldcraft Survival. Mike came onto my radar on a post probably two or three months ago where he said he wanted to go to Kruger National Park in South Africa to understand and maybe help with the rhino poaching. Well, rhinos in South Africa, specifically in Kruger National Park, have plummeted. Their populations are down 75%. And so I reached out to Mike to get him on our podcast to essentially talk about that. But as you'll hear, we took a significant left turn to talk about Ballistic 6.5 Creedmoor and the ethics of long-range shooting. It's fast-paced, exactly like we like our podcasts. So enjoy. Knock it out. Okay. So I i noticed you specifically because you said, hell yeah, I want to go to South Africa next year and help with the rhino poaching.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think I... I well, one... <laughs> The week I was supposed to leave to do a recce, uh, the, our government shut down all travel restrictions. Um, right. Or shut down and implemented travel restrictions against the South African uh, country as well as like neighboring countries, which I think was ridiculous that he did that. But um, that kind of pushed our timeline. But yeah, I, I want to do it in, um, uh, it's called Kruger. National Park. Yep, Kruger National Park. What you'll know yeah. about me is I, have a, I did all of
1: my honors research and my master's research at Kruger National Park. I spent probably eight months in the northern plains of Kruger. And so when it's, it's a near and dear to my heart kind of deal. It's where I cut my teeth in uh, wildlife management. And um, I was also given a very young uh, sort of – they call them police. Back in the day, they called them police boys. They called them apoises. The And the the poisons were the section rangers that went out on anti-poaching patrols. And I was given one to go and do all my research on the Northern Plains. And this guy was pretty much like, if we come across poachers, screw your research, we're chasing them. And we chased two sets of poachers whilst we were there. And it was crazy. Like, I've got no military background, Mike. I, I came from South Africa. I wish I had military background. You know, folks like you, I owe everything to because I'm a U.S. citizen today and I've got two small boys that are being raised in this country. But that's as close to where I've I've been in a situation that, you know, bullets are being shot and saying, you know, get on the ground kind of deal.
2: Yeah, that's crazy. I think um, people forget that poachers are living in a constant state of desperation. I mean, there, there's a – it's not – you don't have to be empathetic. To understand and know your enemy you just need to be understanding and uh, a poacher's psychology is living in a constant state of anxiousness because he has to provide for his family and so what he's doing what what he's what he thinks he's doing just like a freedom fighter you know one person's enemy or or terrorist group or terrorist as another you know community's freedom fighters and so um, when you understand that about them, it could be super sketchy when it comes to like the tactics that are involved because they're, not, they're not going to be willing to like give up or potentially they'll fight to the death. And that's, that's scary, man. I, I'm I'm glad you, it worked out right for you, but I've heard that about Kruger national park because of the, the border situation where it borders right. and they come in across the border, do the, um all the things that they're doing and then pull them across the border and that's how they get away with it.
1: No, 100%, 100% bordered by Zimbabwe to the north and obviously its entire length to the east by Mozambique. Um, so it's a, tough, it's a tough scenario to to police essentially. And again, you've got to remember these guys that are getting paid to protect the wildlife in South Africa are paying, getting paid pittance, right? And so the guys that are coming in from a rhino poaching perspective are saying, shit, you're making $100 a month. I'll give you a thousand dollars if you tell me where Rhino is. What would you do, Mike?
2: Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, especially in that in that state of I mean, you, you, you grew up in Africa. I mean, it's like depending on where you're at, depending on your situation, I mean you could grow up in dirt. You know what I mean? Like 100%. you don't have aspirations for the future and getting paid a lot of money, which could put you in a position where you you see all your dreams come true on a on your cell phone if you're lucky to have one, that's that's impactful, mm-hmm. man. And there, there has to be a good mm-hmm. balance. It's just like I look at it as like uh, homicide rates or crime rates and fighting crime in uh, America. I have a you know academic degree in law enforcement and uh, criminal justice, and y- when you get the academia version of criminal justice, you learn it's a comprehensive problem. It's not just one single position. Like you need more cops on the streets, more security. That's not. That's going to fix one one-hundredth of the problem. And with poachers, certainly it's the case that it's a very complex problem. It's not just as easy as interdicting them because the, it's just like terrorism. The more you interdict them, the more you kill or capture them, the more they'll produce and the more that you'll be fighting that war forever.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Mike Glover, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. I am certainly, I'm certainly humbled
2: and grateful for you to be here.
1: Uh, for those that don't know who you are, you want to give a little introduction
2: to who you are? Yeah, sure. I'm. I'm. Uh, you know. I'm. A, I guess I'm a military guy. I would position myself as that. I, I spent twenty years in the in the army, and then uh, had a stint uh, government contracting in the CIA, and then you know I feel like I grew up at some point and decided you know I want to do something different with my life, so I started a business, and now I'm an entrepreneur that owns a company in Utah. We have uh, a place in North Carolina and Utah. Uh, employ 50 people that focused our attention on training, equipping, and educating civilians, citizens to be better prepared. And, you know, and like we were just talking about with South Africa, I get a lot of traffic and a lot of good communication with people in South Africa because they're living that kind of same life, which is, you know, a semi permissive environment where they need to be able to protect themselves. And that's our mission statement with the company, craft Survival.
1: So, let me ask this question did you grow were, are you, are you a hunter, Mike?
2: Yeah, absolutely Yeah, i'm i'm uh I grew up a hunter. I'd say I, growing up I, I fished more than I hunted, but certainly a hunter.
1: Have you felt any in sort of the military world, in the world that you've gone into, this entrepreneurial world that you live in now? Uh, probably I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Have you felt any like push? From someone to say, mm, Mike, you know, you, you're into this military stuff. Now you're into the survival stuff. Maybe you shouldn't be talking about hunting, you know, as much as you do, or or when you do, let's just leave that stuff alone, you know.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's I love it. <laughs> funny, I get, I mean, it, it's out there. It's residual. I don't pay attention to a lot of it, but I certainly, you know, there's some elements that I would validate that say that that I would say I get it. You know, like um, what I realized going into hunting, um, committing to it more full time because I wasn't dependent on an operational or a a, a combat cycle. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a sniper by trade, and as a sniper in special operations, I understand data, I understand ballistics, and I understand the capability of my weapon systems, my optics, all, all the things that make a sniper a good sniper. And what I realized in the hunting space all the things that you pay attention to uh in a hunt aren't necessarily directed at like having the best setup for a gun it's like hey let's go out here shoot a paper plate and if we hit the paper plate that's good enough but mm-hmm. i grew up in a, a a culture where it was never that was never accepted and so when it comes to shooting my bow when it comes to hunting with my bow when it comes to shooting a gun and hunting with my rifle um I, everything has to be perfect so that and even communicating it has caught some flack from people that are like "Ooh, you know you're on you're on murky water and you know whatever
1: it's funny how this idea of discussing a thing that you love so much just because you like it this way and someone lo- likes it the other way somehow in the hunting community space that's like taboo you're not supposed to You know, I'm not supposed to agree with you, Mike, if you like to shoot things at 600 yards when I think I wouldn't, you know, it's this, I I don't get it.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, that same exact issue came up and it's not, I always say, especially with long guns and hunting, it has nothing to do with the distance because everybody hones in on the distance where if you're, if you're looking at six, five Creedmoor over 308, Completely different considerations because at a thousand yards, uh, the science tells us that 6.5 Creedmoor has double the hit ratio of 308. I know that because I was part of the studies in Special Operations Command and, and have an employee who actually ran the study with Brian Litz, the biggest brain in external ballistics. You just um, said
1: 6.5 Creedmoor has bigger hitting power at a thousand than a 308?
2: It has double the hit ratio over 308 at a thousand yards. Which is why Special Operations Command is going to it now n- now when I went to cyber school, I had a 308 I had an m24 like a Remington 700 long action that was just dialed in it was it probably wasn't even dialed in it just had a better trigger so when I when I shot and held a wind call at Fort Bragg, North Carolina at 600 meters, um I could tell the difference between that and 300 wind mag because I was holding half the distance in the wind call. So if the wind Mm. call is 1.5 mils, I would hold, you know, three quarter mil. And so when, when you look at the, the data or the science, a lot of hunters, because they don't know the very specific details will focus on the distance. It's not about the distance for me, as far as being ethical, it's about the time of flight. So it's the time of flight of the round, when it leaves the barrel that you can calculate based on the distance to determine what that time of flight is is going to be and if you're looking at a time of flight at 600 800 um beyond yards and that time of flight runs into the seconds then yeah that could be completely unethical because one you're out of the distance of the animal two a lot of things change in seconds and then three if you wound the animal the likelihood of you actually harvesting or or killing that animal is is reduced because of the distance um Mm -hmm. Quickly, the last thing on that is not just the time of flight, but it's also, um, it's also the, I mean, there's a whole bunch of calculations that we can count, account for, but it's also the responsibility of where that bullet is supersonic, where it's transonic, where it's shifting, and then where it's subsonic. If you're shooting a gun, it's, say it's 308, and, it's, and you're shooting beyond 800 uh, meters, I'm used to meters metric. Then you're certainly in line the,
1: because I'm South African, and everyone in the world uses metric. By the way, it doesn't matter.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I grew up. It's so weird being a hunter because it's all yards. Um, I speak metric, but it's like if that bullet is 800 meters or beyond, well, then it's it's subsonic, which just means, in layman's terms, it's less predictable. So if you're looking at 800 meters where it's subsonic, not
1: less powerful, not less powerful, Mike. Less predictable.
2: Yeah, but, Yes, less predictable, less predictable. Okay. Ski. Because the one environmental factor that we have yet, based on my conversations with the best technological experts in the world, is wind. We can't account for wind. So that wind at that distance, when it's subsonic, is, is going to do some things that's unpredictable, reducing our hit probability. Which, you know, is just a, a lot of talk about, hey, pay attention, understand the data mm-hmm. before you get conversations about, like, 308's the best round ever made. Well, I get it because you're emotionally tied to it, because your granddad taught you how to shoot that 308. That's fine. But there's a lot better calibers and rounds and, and experts than than you, potentially. All right.
1: I'm gonna pry open a Pandora's box here because but I need to set it up for you. Half the things you just said, I've never heard because you're speaking to the most naive individual when it comes to guns, ammo's, calibers, ballistics, okay? I need a Mike Glover two-day immersion course, in Robbie, this is what this does. This is what this does. This is what this does. Okay, so here's the Pandora's box. There is a a sentiment in the hunting community that 6.5 Creedmoor sucks ass. Yeah. That shooting oh. elk at, with a 6.5 Creedmoor is the worst thing that you can possibly do. Why would they be saying that, Mike?
2: So that... The re- I mean, there's a couple reasons. One, six-five Creedmoor is a long, skinny round, and terminal ballistic effects on a six-five Creedmoor aren't as good as some other, like three-three-eight Lapua. Uh, not, not debatable. Um, so, w- one of the problems with this is also the mentality of what you look at as a kill box on an elk. So, you one, you put a six-five Creedmoor round through the chest cavity or the kill box. Which is at a minimum, most people would consider 18 inches by 18 inches by 18 inches squared. Some could get the, depending on what elk, some could be two feet by two feet by two feet. When you look at that as a minute of angle and accuracy tethered back to the gun, then you have a wide tolerance for using a lot of wacky rounds. Because as long as you get a round into that chest cavity, you're gonna put it down. Now one of the problem inherent problems of six that I've heard from hunters is that because it's bl- because it's sharp because it's thin because it's long it's not doing as much damage which is increasing the mm. time of kill which is completely true um you know i just killed a, a a mule deer up in the mountains of utah right right down the street from my house and i used a 308 but i was at 250 275 yards and 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 he was moving tracking and i i put one through his chest well any round at 500 yards or in it's almost irrelevant. All the major hunting calibers, 308, 762 by 51 300 Win Mag, 300 Norma, 300 uh, or, or uh, 6.5 Creedmoor are going to destroy that animal um, very fast and, and get a, a very good ethical kill. What I, what my thing is with 6.5 is if you look at the guns that are made for 6.5 Creedmoor, like the Sig Cross, the Sig Cross out of the box is i know my friend designed that gun dan horner who's a buddy of mine who who uh is a professional shooter taught my special forces team when i was uh, a young team sergeant a decade ago designed this rifle with hunting in mind lightweight um super uh accurate out of the box so if i take that gun and it's a sub minute gun meaning it shoots a one inch by one inch group at 100 yards that means at distance let's say it's uh, five yard or 500 yards it's going to be a five inch by five inch group we're still talking about this so mm-hmm. when you look mm-hmm. at other rounds they're not capable because of the, the characteristics of the actual round of having that kind of accuracy at distance my debate or argument for six five would be a special operations command is down selecting a six five creedmoor to kill terrorists on bat- foreign battlefields um, because it's the best round at killing human beings, then I would likely reference that for the best round killing elk. When you're paying attention, if you're now lobbing around right. seven millimeter into the side of an elk and your box is this big, then it's not a big deal. But if you're like me, mm-hmm. I don't want to put a round into the box. I want to put a round into the off-color segments of the hair in the box. You know, and that's the difference mm-hmm. between a, a, like a PRS shooter, a sniper. And, you know, I don't know, just a hunter who, who's just not potentially paying attention.
1: Mm-hmm. Going back to the whole like long range debate, right? That's one of the things that if you, if you look into the hunting community, there's certain things that elicit a lot of controversy, a lot of hate. Long range shooting is one of those that almost elicits this ethical component, right? And ethics is the, actually the wrong terminology there. Ethics is, is tied to, you know, uh, uh, the killing of that animal. When it comes to long range, I, I, it almost falls in the preference category, okay? But let's just for for argument's sake, for discussion's sake, let's call it ethics. Go back to what is that? That how would you describe someone like you know? When I say when someone says eight too far, to me, I'm like, okay, well, why? Like, why is it eight hundred too far, and you say three okay? Why do you why do you think the distinction is there? that 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 drives that number.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think I think ultimately it has to do with hit probability and less emotion and less um like I, I think I got those skill sets, right? Like a lot of people will virtue signal in hunting, just like any other space in industry, because it's experience based and and what I've realized about hunting, which is very different than what I grew up hunting. I grew up hunting whitetail in <clears throat> tree stands <clears throat> and hunting whitetail in tree stands is like hunting at a zoo like it's just not fair i mean it's like it's not one it's not fair two it's not fun and but that's just how you grow what up you mean mike it's
1: not fair like we thought there was a pandora's box you just freaking opened away pandora's box of course yeah. it's fair
2: mike come
1: yeah, on it's true, they're man. not I mean, penned in you didn't circle a pen around a tree and the, the deer came out and you
2: shot it Come on now. Well, I think that, you know, it's, it's funny is that derives from my experience in combat. Like I, like I had different instances in combat where I'm like, this doesn't seem fair. Right. It's like, like, I, this is an easy thing for me to accomplish. This is an easy thing for me to kill. And it, my brain processes like that. So when I came out West, I realized there's this other world, you know, I started in Colorado and did a couple elk hunt and a couple bear hunt with my buddies and realized, man, not only is this realistic to what I did for a career field, but it's challenging and it, it forces you to refine all of your skill sets. Fitness, if you're not, if you're, if you're a, you know, a backwoods hunter in North Carolina used to operating out of a tree stand, you're not going to have a fitness regime set up for your hunt. You screw around and go to Idaho, like I just got back from Sawtooth, where the estimates are we walked about forty miles in three days. Um, that was Ugh. brutal. And I I'd do it for a living. I mean, that that, that yeah. for me was like destroyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we I, I think the distinction is where you're hunting, uh, what you're hunting for, and then this relationship the distance. Um, I I don't like when people talk kind of out of their butts about it. If they understand number one, the first question I would ask a hunter, if they started talking about distance in argument, I would say, what is the muzzle velocity of your round in feet per second out of the barrel? And and if you if you pay attention 95 to
1: ninety-five percent of the people would say we don't know.
2: Exactly. Yeah. But that's the first metric that you would use to identify the in combination with the density altitude, your applied ballistics dope your data on previous previous engagement for all the stages of where that round's going to be in space and time. So muzzle velocity. And then I would say, do you know when your round goes subsonic or transonic? And again, <coughs> if they don't know that, then they don't know where they need to zero their weapon system to true it. It's called truing. And this is all you know, this is If anybody's listening to this, they're like, what the hell is this dude talking about? This is all based on Todd Hodnett, uh, which changed the sniper game. Kevin Owens, who works for me, actually helped in this process. But it's all about ballistic calculators and understanding your dope. Because this is more powerful of a tool in your ballistics and hmm. understanding what your gun's doing than, than shooting your dope on a day that you think is going to be similar to the day that you shoot on the hunt. Those days are long gone. I'll catch some shit for that too.
1: No. No, look, I think you're gonna catch shit for a bunch of shit that you just said about fair chase and whatnot. But what you did say is this. This is what I this is what I heard you say. And you said it wasn't fair. What you what I heard you say is that my preference for hunting requires a little bit more challenge than being in a tree stand all day and figuring out travel corridors and waiting for the buck that I've patterned down quite well through trail cameras and other intelligence to be able to position myself in a place to execute a shot that I know I'm very confident in already. And so to me, that's not quite the challenge that a backwoods black bear hunt in the sawtooth of Idaho would put me in, to me, that's more challenging. It's not a question of being fair or not. It's It's a personal preference to a style of hunting that you like.
2: Yeah, well, I I think I think you should have both. I mean, I have both. I have the friends with ranch tags where I can go down like it's the like I'm shooting a video game and and harvest meat, which is essential for conservation. Um, that I, I'm not going to complain about. But also, I have to have these challenging adventures and and more of it's the experience and the process to line out all the deficiencies in my own game. I mean, <clears throat> we teach at Philcraft. That preparedness isn't just like your everyday carry pistol and your waistband. It's about the whole lifestyle. So if you want to be a hunter and then your idea of hunting is just hitting the tree stand predictively, and that's that's your game plan, that's that's one thing. But that's not my game plan. I want to be very broad, I wanna be be very versed, and I want to be very diversified across different spectrums of hunting. That's why, you know, I pick up a bow. I mean, am I I'm not very good with a bow. I didn't grow up with a bow in my hands, um, but it's challenging for me. And that's the reason why I gravitate towards it. So I, I think m- most, I would say, I would venture to say most hunters don't have that mindset, but the hunters mm-hmm. that I hang with hang with certainly are that and, and psycho. They're like crazy, right? Mm-hmm. They're just, mm-hmm. they, they're addicted to it. But uh, I appreciate those guys because those are the guys that I'm leaning on uh, for their expertise. No, 100%, 100%. Let's get back to the rhinos.
1: So are you going to um you going to before you head there this summer? You're still planning to head there this summer?
2: Yeah, so I'm, I'm you know, Jack Carr is coming with us. He's got a little conflict. Jack Carr. Frickin', I met
1: that that, that SOB three days ago, man. He's brilliant. He Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Yeah, I podcasted with him three days ago. Um, oh, I, I, think I love Jack. You, you and Jack Carr got a hold of Blood Origins about the same time. And he was just like, man, let's connect, let's have a podcast, let's, uh, let's talk, because he went to northern Mozambique, Niassa, where I've been as well, proper Africa, and it was just like, man, it's, there's no other place in the world.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I so we, we are still planning for that trip, tentatively, around late summer, early fall, and um, the idea is to go there, kind of field assess and determine Hey, what are the needs? What are the issues here? I, I, I think for me, it it's not about like, it's not about monetization. It's not about popularity. It's right. about telling the story right. and bringing awareness to the issue. That That's most significant for us. Mm-hmm. So if I can get, you know, if I can get Chris mm-hmm. Pratt, um, that would be amazing because it would bring more popularity to it. Um, And he's a good dude. So I, I'm trying to get as many sure. people on board as possible. Yeah,
1: for sure. Well, today we posted, this morning we posted an article coming out of Kruger that Kruger has lost 75% of its rhinos since 2006.
2: They've what now? With it, 75%.
1: What, was what? 75% of rhinos have been lost in Kruger since 2006. I heard a very disturbing statistic that north of a certain camp in Kruger, they just did a flight census and there's zero rhinos. Oh my gosh, man that's insanity i'm telling you it is from the premier park that i used to attend as a kid like krüger was the thing man krüger as 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 a kid in south africa was like you going to yellowstone as a kid here in america right you're not allowed out of your vehicles obviously in south africa because you get eaten by shit but it's it was the thing right and the big 5 was the thing that you wanted to check the box off you wanted to see elephant buffalo lion leopard and rhino and as it comes back down to the fact that these guys that are protecting the resources are paid very, very little and corruption is just rife. And now you've got sort of this idea of you're you're training guys to protect rhinos whilst at the same time, they're supplying information to the the guys that are pulling the rhino horn. So a friend of mine that, um, after this podcast, I'll, I'll, I want to connect you to him. Um, it's almost working multiple angles, including the intelligence side. So they're working on the training side, but now they're working on the intelligence side to figure out, like you know, what's the what's the game here, which is obviously right at your alley.
2: Yeah, I, I man, it's disappointing. I think um, like this what you just said about them giving back information, and intelligence. It's it's almost like a vicious, endless um, cycle. It's it's like how do you get around that kind of Culture, which is uh, a bartering and and someone would say super corrupt culture. That's just their way of life. You know, they don't look at corruption as as a bad thing. They look at it as hey, that would be like me. You know, negotiating with the neighbors here to to help me out because some foreigners are coming here dumping money into our laps, and we just want to get richer. I think I think the start point for me is it needs to be revamped completely. I mean the the sergeant major in me wants to sit down with a whiteboard with a team of experts and then start from scratch and go, Hey, how can we address this? How can we fix this from zero? Not with old ideas, not with old input, not with legacy uh, concepts, but like from scratch because it it is a problem. And if we don't fix it, there'll be nothing left. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. There'd just Mm -hmm. be nothing left. And then because we're paying attention to politics and COVID and all this dumb crap in the world, we're forgetting about our most precious resources, which is, which is my, in my opinion, rhinos are on that list.
1: No, 100%. And that's the thing that eggs us the most, is that when you hear all about these trophy hunting bans in the UK and Connecticut and frickin' on the center floor and, and, and the federal government, you're like, guys, you're, you're, you're looking at it wrong. The, the people that are... In, putting money behind anti-poaching, people that are protecting habitat, people that are dehorning rhino because they want to devalue the rhino, for the majority, the vast majority, are hunting outfits. And what you're telling them is like, no, we're going to ban what you do to protect, quote-unquote, these valuable resources. And it's the, it's the antithesis of that. And it's like we don't – like. there's proof. Look, Kruger. Look, Kruger Kruger's a phenomenal destination, but they don't have the money they don't have the, the manpower. There's people working on it, like you're going to work on it, and these friends of ours are working on it. But you go to some private game reserves that I've been to, and they've got military-style contractors that are paid very, very well to protect these resources. And they don't—they're not getting killed. They're not getting poached. So it, it, you're right, dude. It is—you know—it's—it's it's the thing that the anti's think that we—that we as hunters do not love wildlife. We love wildlife. We want to protect wildlife. We want to sustain wildlife. That's why I do what I do every single day is because I want my kids and my grandkids to be able to experience a rhino one day.
2: Yeah, I think that's so important now is I, I think selfishly about our kids and our kids' kids and next generations because it's so easy now to not pay attention to these issues. And then before you realize it, it's it's gone. And I, I think my you know I, I hope jack Carr can come but if he can't i'm going by myself i don't care if it's me and just my camera guy um mm-hmm. whatever i can do to tell the story um get get to krüger national park and 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 communicate about how significant of an issue this is we'll, we'll make it happen i actually go um sure. i might even go earlier than that um if 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 jack's out if um uh we were looking at uh, um clay croft from x overland who's a huge Mm conservationist amazing human being um i'd like to go with him as well if possible
1: yeah for sure for sure well mike you've been a trooper man i know you've been coughing your lungs out there uh and nobody knows but you 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 actually told me before the podcast started you got covid so um i appreciate you powering through my man uh for us and for blood origins and we're super humbled and grateful that um you are uh, on this podcast, and, and you like what we do, and uh, we're obviously big fans of yours too.
2: No, I appreciate it. I, anybody who reaches out to me for a podcast inquiry, the first thing I do is go to their page and just see what they're about, and it took me, I don't know, 10 seconds to figure out that you guys were my kind of people. Um, I, I think these podcasts are so important, and, and to me personally, my favorite podcast to do, because... It's something that I'm very passionate about and love, and I just appreciate the hard work that you're doing. And, uh, yeah, it was my pleasure.
1: No worries, mate. Cheers. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.